Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products. Just for being a Getting In listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice by going to www.audible.com college. From Slate and Panoply, this is Getting In, a podcast series about the path to college. I'm your host, Julie Lithcott-Hames, and today we'll be answering more of your listener questions. And joining me today is our Getting In expert, Park Muth. As listeners will remember, Park spent nearly 30 years as a dean and admissions officer at the University of Virginia. He's now a private consultant who helps students and families in the admissions process. Welcome back, Park. Great to be back, Julie. One piece of business before we get started, Park. We said something last week that turned out to be inaccurate. On the last episode, Josh Steckel and I talked about ROTC, R-O-T-C, the Reserve Officer Training Corps, and its scholarship programs. But we were mistaken about one aspect of it, and two different listeners with military backgrounds alerted us about the error, which is fantastic. Thank you, folks. Here's a voicemail from a Navy commander clarifying the situation. Hi, this is Commander Dan Goldenberg from the U.S. Navy. I have a junior in high school. The information put out on ROTC was actually incorrect. The ROTC is something, if you want a scholarship, you actually have to apply for before you attend the school. You can get a scholarship while you're in school. But the big four-year scholarships are a very competitive process. So it turns out you can apply to ROTC programs as a high school senior if you want a four-year scholarship. In fact, you should. Each military branch has a slightly different ROTC process and different deadlines. So we definitely encourage families to do more research if this is something you'd like to pursue. Okay, Park, now it's your turn. You've got a lot of seniors you're working with this year, and now's the time of year when everyone's getting notified about acceptances and rejections. What patterns and surprises are you noticing at this point in the process in 2016? Well, the first thing I'll say is that there are a lot of students who are getting great news. In fact, the vast majority of students, if they've done a good job of planning, of picking schools that match their interests, abilities, and background, who are getting accepted to a number of schools. So in some ways, I would say it's more of a buyer's market than a lot of people recognize. And a lot of the students I'm working with, I've either heard good news or at least gotten something out there called a likely letter, which schools write to some people that basically say you're getting in but aren't officially telling them they're getting in. As far as any surprises, I think... Tuition discounting is becoming even more of a factor where colleges are offering certain amounts of money, in some cases $5,000, dollars $15,000, $20,000 off the sticker price, as it were. And I guess the last thing I'll say, I don't think it's significantly harder from what I'm seeing for students to get into the top of the top schools. I've seen a number of students so far who are getting into Brown and Princeton and Yale and Penn and Stanford and the usual suspect schools, and they seem like the kinds of students who are getting in last year. So I don't think it's it's been ratcheted up dramatically from last year to this year. Well, that's a small bit of good news, and I guess <laughs> it makes me think maybe it's just not possible for them to ratchet it up anymore. Tell me more about buyer's market. Tell me also about tuition discounting. 
which applicants are finding themselves in a kind of buyer's market and, and which applicants are, are getting the offers of these large tuition discounts you've referred to? I have a lot of students from outside the U.S., Northern Virginia, Midwest and West. And um, I, I would say it's, it's pretty common. They're, they're getting some good things to think about. I can think of one student. He's a good, solid student, and he was offered plane fare to go fly out west to visit a good university there. And again, he's a good student, but he's not off the charts. So that shows me something. There's another student who he got $10,000 from an engineering school that, again, he's a good student, but not necessarily off the charts student. Now, some of the international students who normally have as tough or tougher chance of getting into many of these selected schools, they're getting recruited. Some of them have gotten the likely letters that I mentioned. And so I think in terms of money, most of those internationals are full payers. So I think that's coming into play for a number of these students. And as far as tuition discounting, as I said, I've seen that with some students, but I think there's going to be a lot more of that happening as more decisions go out because it's just something that a lot of schools feel they have to do in order to enroll the the class that they're looking for. And let's shine some light on this concept of the likely letter. How many students or what percentage of the incoming admitted class is likely to get a quote-unquote likely letter, this sort of signal a few weeks or months in advance that, hey, yeah, we're planning to admit you? I, I can't guess the percentage for each of the different schools, but it's not a huge percentage because they're still making decisions as we speak. At the University of Virginia, when we sent likely letters, it was only to about maybe 10 percent of the students who uh, had applied. 10% of the students who'd applied or who were going to be admitted? Probably 10% were going to be admitted. I think you're right. Okay. So a likely letter is not quite a commitment in writing, but it's as close to it as you can. For those receiving a likely letter, what's your advice to them about the extent to which they can count on it? Well, as long as there is not an update which shows that they've gone down their third quarter grades or something bad has happened in the school and they some kind of infraction and they've gotten suspended for a day or two. They should be planning on, you know, travel. So they may want to make hotel reservations in a place because they're going to be hearing from a lot of schools. And as many of these schools have what are called yield programs, where they invite accepted students to come and there are special receptions and the faculty and classes and they stay in the dorms or just a lot of different things can happen. So students who receive them should be very confident that they're going to be admitted and they should go ahead and maybe start planning the places they're going to visit if they've already heard from two or three places to maybe go back for a second visit or a first visit to determine where they're going to put a deposit. Yeah, and as you and I both know, the visit is an essential component of one's decision-making process to the extent you can afford to go. And if you can't afford to go, actually, you can inquire to the school as to whether there's any funds available to defray the cost of your flying out. It's really important to go. The reason is there's only so much you can learn from the website and from the videos they send and all of this and from public opinion. You yourself, the young man or young woman contemplating spending four years of your life at 
this campus, you must walk those pathways. You must make your way through that campus. Ask people not paid to give you answers, meaning not the tour guides. Find some other students and just very kindly say, hey, do you go here? Yeah, great. What do you love about this place? Let the student answer. That's your icebreaker question. And then ask, what would you change about this place? What would you change if you could? The response to that second question, I think, reveals tons of information about the school, particularly if you ask three or four or five students on your visit. Your own resonance with the answer the students give you is going to tell you a lot about whether you're going to feel a sense of fit or belonging on that campus. And ultimately, that sense that you have within your own body, informed by your intellect, informed by your reason and rationality, informed by the various matrices you've made about which school offers what and which school is better at this versus that, All of that helps inform this sort of bodily decision, this gut feeling that you will come to that, hey, yeah, this is the place for me. Or uh, actually, no, I'm not feeling so great at this place. And there's really, I think, nothing um, that can supplant the value of actually visiting the campus. So to the extent you're looking at a number of options this spring, visit those you are most serious about and let that visit really greatly inform, I think, the the decision-making process. And I can't say enough to reinforce that. I love what you've said and the way that you presented that to students and family. Well, Park, we've got a few listener questions that we've been saving just for you. They're both from Virginia and specifically about how competitive things can get for those spots at Virginia in-state schools. We got a letter recently from a mom in Virginia named Krista. We are a military family that relocated to Northern Virginia, specifically Fairfax County, for our youngest daughter's senior year. We have lived all over the world, and this is not our first child to successfully navigate the college admission process. In fact, our oldest daughter attended Washington and Lee University on a Johnson scholarship. However, I have never in all my life witnessed a similar environment to the one that permeates this area. This region is one of the wealthiest in the country because of the large numbers of successful professionals centered here, and the pressure for the students to succeed rises beyond an unhealthy level. This particular county seems so concerned about achievement that they don't even track unweighted GPAs. I know this because our daughter is applying for schools outside of Virginia who want only unweighted GPAs, and the school did not have a way to calculate it when our daughter asked. We hear over and over that if you are not near to the top of your class, being from Northern Virginia can almost be more of a hindrance than a help. We will always appreciate the quality of the public schools in this area, but we are also thankful our daughters were able to develop during their younger years in school systems with a more realistic view of life outside Northern Virginia. Thank you for all of your wisdom and support for college-bound students and their families. Oh, boy. Yeah, this is real. I happen to know a thing or two about Fairfax County. I used to live there when I was a kid in elementary school and junior high, and the region is a bedroom community for Washington, D.C., also plenty of industry having nothing to do with the federal government. One of those communities with a lot of highly educated folks, uh, high net worth kind of situation, and correspondingly, a lot of expectations on young people, a lot of pressure around academics, a lot of great schools, and a lot of heartache, a lot of frustration and heartache. I actually profiled a dad from Fairfax County in my book. He had a lovely quote saying something like, you could fill the Ivy League with graduates from Fairfax County high schools. And, you know, maybe he's right. 
So, Park, can living in Northern Virginia, a beautiful part of the country, a lovely place to live, can living there end up hurting an applicant's chance at in-state or even out-of-state schools? Part of my response is the Kennedy response, which is, to whom much is given, much is expected. What does that mean? To essentially say, okay, you go to a high school that offers 26 different AP classes where 85% of the students are going to go to four-year schools, just have enormous opportunities that the vast majority of people going to secondary school in this country do not have access to. I think the stress level that does occur in some of these schools can reach the unhealthy levels. To look at it from the other side, these are students that are going to have some great choices. Now, if they define those great choices as a top 25 school, maybe not. But if they're taking AP courses, they're getting mostly A's and B's in those courses, which I can tell you a lot of people, sometimes more than half the class of those schools in Fairfax County, those students are doing that. They're going to get into some wonderful colleges and universities. Would you rather be in a school system that sends 10% of its students on the college? Well, you think you might be the big star there, but you're in a completely different environment where learning and pushing yourself and even just the curriculum are not what you'd have access to, and you just might not be as well prepared to do well in a selective school. So you also should be careful what you wish for. This point you've made is, I think, the right one. You have access to an amazing high school education. If you can keep it from being cutthroat, pressure-filled stress and instead soak up the opportunity, have confidence that it is well preparing you to be a thriving college student wherever you go. It's frustrating. It's scary when you're in these communities, particularly if you're somebody like Krista, who's moved from elsewhere, relocated to a region you know has great schools and lovely place to live. And then you discover there's a mentality or a set of expectations or realities that just seem out of whack. It can really make you question, did we make the right decision to move here? I think many of us do long for our kids to have an experience that is academically rich and rigorous, but That isn't crazy and insane. Well, we've got another Virginia listener, a woman named Mary Beth, who's called in with a question after hearing a prior conversation we had about whether students at certain high schools end up competing with each other for spots. Let's listen to Mary Beth's voicemail. Hi, this is Mary Beth. I'm calling from Virginia. Recently, you addressed whether students at certain high schools were competing with each other. And your answer presumed that all these high-achieving students and parents were interested in with a high name, um, good quality Ivy League school, whereas in my community, it's more about cost. Our high school kids are competing to get into our top state universities because they're so affordable. So while I agree that some may be happy at second-tier liberal arts schools, they're just simply out of their financial reach. Could you please talk about um, the fact that the finances – are what creates the competitiveness between some students and parents. Thank you. Park, let's talk about finances. How much do finances play into this competitive atmosphere? Well, the first thing I want to say is that the vast majority of students in whatever state they're in stay in state. The national average is somewhere around 75%. Virginia, I think, is a little higher than that. The highest is Texas with 93%. The lowest is Vermont with 38%. But overall, the vast majority of students are going to their state schools. And part of that is financial. I mean, it's just 
a lot less to pay tuition to stay in state. To answer the question a little more specifically, you know, when she says our kids are competing to get into the top state universities because they're so affordable, well, my question back would be, so what constitutes a top state university? I mean, some people will say, well, in Virginia, it's UVA and William and Mary, or it's UVA, William and Mary, Virginia Tech, and then James Madison, Mary Washington, VCU, George Mason. In other words, I could go down a long list where certainly the Commonwealth of Virginia, people are very lucky if they live here because there are a lot of very, very good state institutions. And you look at a lot of other places, the University of California system, for example, um, the Texas system, uh, Penn, uh, Pennsylvania has a great series of state schools. So there are what Wisconsin. Wisconsin. I mean, I can go down a long list. There are just lots of places that students can go and thrive and be within a budget. So if you're saying top universities, that's only two. Well, then, I mean, these are really hard schools to get into. And that's going to be true at UCLA and Berkeley or UVA and William and Mary. These are just, that's that's going to be true. But overall, there are great schools for people to go to in their state. And again, you know, maybe happy at a second tier liberal arts school. And again, I'd argue, well, what's a second tier liberal arts school? I, I might argue that some, I mean, there are many more first tiers if you get past, you know, are they incredibly hard to get into? Yeah. And is their brand name really well known? Virginia has just an embarrassment of riches when it comes to great public institutions. And um, so I would encourage you, Mary Beth, to look a little bit deeper um, down the list. Well, can I say one other thing? Yeah. Many of the state schools, they have fairly good financial aid, but there are a number of private schools. Their financial aid is significantly better than what some of the state schools can offer. So what can that mean for an individual student? Well, I've seen it happen that a student who's gotten into Stanford or Harvard or Duke, it costs them a lot less to go there than it would their state school. Now, how can that happen? Well, the financial aid packages will differ, but also some of those schools are going to make their package completely composed of grants as opposed to low-interest loans. So at the other end, it's actually possible that some of these private schools can be even more affordable Mm. than public schools. And there aren't that many people, I think, who are low-income who may understand that, that that might be one of the reasons they're not applying. Yeah, I think we can't hammer that point often enough. Uh, Josh Steckel certainly has spoken about that. Don't presume, if you are a working class family, a lower middle class family, don't presume that your only options are public institutions and that private equals unaffordable. Many of the private schools are incredibly wealthy and therefore can offer a tremendous amount of financial aid. I think one of the indicators you might look at if you're willing to look at a private is what percentage of the students on that campus are receiving some form of aid. And at many of the wealthier privates, that number exceeds 50%. So check it out. Our next letter is from a dad named Bill Eaton in Thousand Oaks, California, which is down there in the Los Angeles, greater Los Angeles area. Hi, I love your podcast and I've listened to every episode. Your show places a lot of emphasis on small liberal arts colleges and the performing arts. 
I'm wondering if you have any suggestions for small schools with rigorous math and science departments. I remember when I was in engineering school, we had to take more difficult lower level math, physics, and chemistry courses than other students. While I don't necessarily expect my daughters to become engineers like their mother and me, I would like them to be exposed to rigorous classes so they have the option to pursue hardcore STEM careers if they choose. I've seen some liberal arts schools to offer 3 plus 2 programs where students spend the first three years of the school and then transfer to another school to finish up the degree requirements for a STEM major. Is that a good way to go? Do you know of any success stories of students that take this route? Park, a couple questions here. The 3 plus 2 concept, as well as more generally, which small liberal arts colleges have strong science and math and engineering STEM programs that you might recommend that Bill take a look at? Well, Bill, I think if you start investigating 3-2 programs, you're going to see there are dozens and dozens of these programs across the country. I'm just going to mention a couple that are in different geographical areas. It's not necessarily these are the best, but for example, Mount Holyoke for women, uh, Agnes Scott, again, an all-women school. You got Hobart and William Smith, which is a small liberal arts in the Northeast in the Midwest, you've got Lawrence and Oberlin, Wash U. Um, in the West, you've got Whitworth, Pepperdine, Occidental. In the South, you have Austin. There are lots of 3-2 programs, and I spend time traveling and talking with people at some of these very good and selective small liberal arts colleges, and they have had students do the 3-2 program and end up at MIT or some of the other prestigious schools or maybe engineering programs that aren't quite as well known, but they've they've had great options out there. So if that's something your daughters might be interested in, they're going to have a lot to choose from. And I think they should be relatively comfortable in saying, if I do that and I do well in my first three years, I will have good options for my final two years. In terms of STEM in general, I mean, again, I could list hundreds of liberal arts schools. And one thing I've discovered when I've been traveling with some of those schools around the world is they're always quick to say, we are liberal arts and sciences colleges. That people forget (laughs) that they have great science departments, they have great labs, and they would argue that the research that's being done isn't done just by, you know, it isn't done by graduate students or postdocs. And mm-hmm. all the research opportunities that are there are with the faculty and the undergraduate students. And that can give them access to research opportunities they might not have at a major research university. I know of a student this year, I mean, she's applied to a number of different schools, but the one that she's gotten the most feedback from is a small liberal arts college, and a professor has just been her new best friend going back and forth about research opportunities the student would have at that school. So it can be seen, and I think some of the small liberal arts schools would argue, that they may find as good or even better opportunities at some of these schools. Yeah. You know, I'm in this too, folks. I got a kid who's a junior interested in bio and thinks he wants to do bio research one day, and meaning he wants to get a PhD. He thinks. He's 16. What does he know? But, you know, yeah, he might. And As he puts his college list together, he's kind of looking at this very question that Bill has raised. And we actually found a lovely list on the web. If you Google something like, where do bio PhDs get their start? 
there's a list. And this the, the list includes places you might expect, like MIT and Caltech, but then it lists a bunch, eight more small colleges, Harvey Mudd, Oberlin, Reed, Swarthmore, Haverford, Carleton, Kalamazoo, and Grinnell. If you haven't heard of some of those schools, you need to hear about those schools. They're incredible small liberal arts and sciences colleges where the faculty are incredibly talented. Kids get a really rigorous preparation in the sciences and go on to do PhDs. The information is out there. If we can not be beholden to brand name and be willing to look at some of these places. I mean, Harvey Mudd was the first thought that came into my mind as I listened to Bill's question. It's right down there in the Pasadena area of the greater Los Angeles basin and very near Caltech, very near a lot of other great schools, Harvey Mudd. If you haven't heard of it, but you're interested in engineering, you need to check it out. I don't work for Harvey Mudd, by the way. I know it sounds like I do. (laughs) All right, let's move on. We got this letter from Avery Lumang, a high school student in the great state of Michigan. She has two questions. Hello, my name is Avery, and I'm currently a junior from a magnet school in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I'm currently making first drafts of my college list and have some questions. One of the schools on my list is undoubtedly a REIT school, simply because of my extracurriculars, not because of my academic rigor. It is also a school that, if I got in, I would almost certainly choose to attend. Knowing that it is a REIT school, but that I believe I would do well once there, does it benefit me at all to apply early decision? My other question is, how many schools do you recommend a student apply to? I've seen people applying to as few as two and as many as 27 schools. I'm not quite sure what my target should be. Thank you and good luck with the rest of the college process. Oh, my goodness. Okay, Park, let's take the second question first. Uh, Between 2 and 27, what's the right number of schools? What do you recommend to the various students you're um, counseling? What's the right range of schools for a student to apply to? Well, in part, it depends on the kind of student I'm talking to. I mean, if a student is going to stay close. Are you saying it's reasonable for students to apply to 27 schools? Well, um, (laughs) let me work my way to that and see if I might be able to convince you at at some point about that. So I'm going to start at the low end. I mean, people that are pretty certain they're going to stay close to home and for whatever reason, and the schools they're looking at are not that competitive and they have the academic background, then it's pretty much they're going to get in. So they shouldn't necessarily be filing a bunch of other applications if they are limited for whatever reason to staying within a certain geographical area. Now, the majority of students I work with, I say you need schools in three categories. You certainly want to have some schools that probably are reaches, as in Avery's case. You want to have some schools that looking at whether it's the website parchment.com or if your school has Naviance, you can get a sense of what your chances might be. If you match that, then you should have several schools in that, and then there should be several schools in the likely category. Uh, I don't like the term backup because they shouldn't be a backup. If they're likely offers, that means there can be places where you can go and be a star, and that's one of the things I argue that's what students should be giving great consideration to rather than going to the most selective school they get into. Now, in terms of the numbers that I just said, well, that would be maybe three reach, three match, three likely. That would be nine. I don't see that that's a huge amount, um, especially for students who are applying to 
some of the most selective schools. Now, there are another group of students that I think should be filing a fair amount of applications if they are looking for merit money. So there are students that are they're very, very good students, and they may be applying to some of the very strong schools, but they may not qualify for financial aid, but it still isn't going to be easy because there are two other kids in the family or whatever. So I would encourage them to apply to schools that would offer them merit scholarships. So that might increase the number of schools they're applying to because they're both looking at some of the highly selective schools, and they are looking for schools that can offer them merit money. And the last group that may go over, I don't know, the 26, but there was a school last year where the average, the average number of applications their seniors filled out was 24. And this was a charter school in Newark, New Jersey. And these are all low-income students. And many of them, they're getting fee waivers because just applying to 24 schools, if you don't have money, you, you've just, <laughs> there's no way you could do it. But these are students who are getting fee waivers and they are looking for the best financial aid programs. So as long as it's free and the applications for many of these schools are the same across the board. They're not expecting you to fill in a bunch of extra essays and things. Because financial aid packages, they may say, we're going to meet your need, but the loan might be $10,000. In other school, it might be $1,000. So these are students that are really, in some ways, trying to find the best financial package they can possibly get. I mean, I'm not encouraging that for a lot of students, but when you hear these, I mean, I know a student at Stuyvesant last year, he applied to 50, and um, one he'd never heard of, and he ended up getting a full scholarship to, and that's where he is now. Oh, my goodness. Um, So, I mean, I'm not encouraging that. I'm just saying there are some reasons that students would do that. There are good reasons, it sounds like, to make sure you're getting the widest range of, you know, financial options. Um, You know, I really appreciate that that clarity because I got to admit my initial response was this is insane. Um, And and thinking from the university's perspective and the college's perspective, I just want to remind listeners you want to apply to places you're actually thinking of going to with this Stuyvesant student notwithstanding who hadn't heard of it, applied, got in, and is now there. Schools want to know you care about them, that you're interested in them. I think it's hard to do research, quality research into 27 schools and actually be able to authentically write in that essay question many of them have. Why do you want to come here? You know, you, you got to you, you, this is not meant to be a scattershot approach. Like, let me cast my net into the sea and see how many schools I can catch. You've got to actually be um, familiar with them, familiar with why they might be the right fit for you. So I just want to caution students hearing this. Like some kid applied to 50 schools, OMG. Some kids at a, a charter school applying to 24. You know, these are large numbers. And at the end of the day, I think our recommendation is there There are some good reasons for applying to that number, particularly around merit aid and need-based financial aid. But I think it can be insane to apply to that many. So please don't hear this and think that that is in any way required or even normal. Let's go back to Avery's first question, Park. Would it benefit her to apply to that REACH school uh, early decision? Well, the first thing I would want to question is Avery is already putting herself in a REACH category based upon her extracurriculars. Now, 
I would want to question that because that may not be true. I mean, maybe she's working a part-time job 30 hours a week or 20 hours a week and thinking, well, I'm not the captain of some team or I'm not the president of some club because I have to work. And that's not true. Now, it may be true she doesn't do much. That's possible. But I would want to question that. And we talked about this new report that's come out of Harvard about turning the tide and that colleges and universities should be focusing on students doing just two or three activities instead of 10 or 15 activities. So it may be that she'll be applying at the time when more schools are going to be looking at a couple activities instead of trying to cover all bases and be all things to all people. But if applying early decision will, in many cases, help a student's chances, uh, Penn says it on their website, you know, it's a distinct advantage. And if you look at the acceptance rates for early decision schools, they are typically much higher than for the regular decision pool. Okay. So sounds like you're encouraging Avery to not discount her chances at getting into this REACH school. Sounds like it's where she wants to go. And when you know that and you have that degree of certainty, early decision exists for that reason, right? So sounds like we're giving her the thumbs up there to give it a go. All right. Park, thanks so much for joining me today. Well, it's been great to be here, Julie. Listeners, thank you for joining us today. We're putting together a special episode looking at how parents are navigating this year's admissions process. So if you're a parent of a senior, we want to hear from you. Send us a voice memo or voicemail with any surprising challenges you've faced and how you dealt with it. We also want to hear your tips, tips you might have for the families who are starting the process now. Send your voice memos and emails to our email address, slate.com. And you can always leave a voicemail on our hotline. That number is 929-999-4353. And you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at gettinginpod. That's all one word, gettinginpod. Getting In is a production of Slate and Panoply Media. Michelle Siegel is our producer. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. And Panoply's chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Julie Lithcott-Hames. And remember, it's not just about getting in. It's about finding the right fit. Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks. You can download them and access them on a bunch of different devices, on iPhones, Android, Kindle, or pretty much any other MP3 player. One book you might try out from Audible is All the Single Ladies. Author Rebecca Traster explores the history of unmarried women in America who, through social, political, and economic means, have radically shaped our nation. If you want to listen to All the Single Ladies or many other books, Audible has it. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audible.com college.